We're going to be taking a look at Mark chapter 14 this morning. Before we turn to the text and read it, uh, just a quick reminder of, uh, of where we've been. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the Last Supper. We looked at Jesus' teaching of his disciples. We saw, of course, Jesus there saying that one of you will betray me. And we learn, of course, that Judas was the one who would turn away. Uh, as we come to this portion of our text this morning, again, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 31 and then jump down to verse 66. What we see is Jesus and the 11. We know that from other gospel accounts that Judas has made his exit by now. So here's Jesus and the 11 who are making their way from the upper room uh, out across the Mount of Olives. They're on their way to Gethsemane. Jesus, we'll look at this next week. Jesus is gonna uh, have that time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here he says to his disciples that every one of them will fall away. He's preaching the good news. Every one of you will fall away. Now, understandably, we'll see they were shocked. We followed you this far, Jesus. How could we possibly fall away now? And of course, we'll see Peter and his uh, strident refusal to accept what Jesus was saying. Now, it's important to step back and, and just marvel at the fact that we have this here. I don't just mean our whole Bible. I mean this account, and in particular, the account of Peter's radical refusal to trust Jesus. Remember, Peter spoke and Mark wrote. Peter is the one who is behind Mark's account. That means that Peter was willing to be brutally honest and humble about his own sin and failure by the time we reach this point where Mark's gospel is recorded. Also, stepping back, keep in mind the context and the, the people to whom Mark was writing. Mark was writing to Christian converts in the Roman Empire in the first century, around mid-first mid century, 60s AD, people who were beginning to experience persecution under Nero, and they were to continue to be under Domitian and others. Incredible persecution. You've heard about it. Christians being thrown to the lions. Christians being lit on fire. And of course, we know the stories throughout history of, of Christian martyrs who have bravely endured, by God's grace, been able to uh, stay true to the faith and not recant, even in the face of certain death. But what an encouragement this passage would have been to those who didn't, to those Christians who may not in that moment have been able to say, here I stand and I will do no other. Or I will never turn away from my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or he has been with me this far, how could I fail him now? As many saints have done throughout the years. What about those who didn't do that? What an encouragement it would have been to know that Peter, Peter didn't do that either. Now, he would. We know how tradition tells us that eventually Peter would be martyred under Nero. But here, when Peter found himself at personal risk, he denied his Savior. What an encouragement it would have been to those who were receiving this gospel. Those who perhaps, they didn't make it into the history books, but those who perhaps turned away. Could they be saved? Would their failure be final? 
They would have been encouraged by this. We need to be encouraged by this as well. In part because we are living in an increasingly secular age that is opposed to Christians and Christianity, of course we are nowhere near. Christians were in the first century and many places and epochs throughout church history. But we we do know what it is like. As Jesus said in the Beatitudes, when people slander you, speak evil concerning you, those things happen. Blessed are you, Jesus would go on to say. And so we do experience this to some degree in our culture, but in a way, every time we sin, it is a denying of Jesus. Every time we sin, we're saying to Jesus, you are not enough for me in this moment. And so every one of us needs to know that when, not if, we deny Jesus in a very public way or in a very private way, that that failure need not be final. We need that good news from this passage. We also need the warnings from this passage. Peter was thoroughly deceived by his own pride. He was convinced nothing could cause him to turn away from Jesus. That's the thing about pride. It blinds you to your weakness, which can prove deadly. It it nearly did for Peter. Spiritual pride is deadly. And then there's the contrast in Mark 14. And we're just going to start this this week, but we'll come back to it next week. And that's the contrast between Judas and Peter in this chapter. We can only touch on it again, but, but the question that I want us to wrestle with this week and next is why did Judas apostatize, but Peter didn't? Or to put it another way, as uh, pastor and theologian Dick Lucas did, why was Judas's turning away terminal, but Peter's turning away only temporary? And then what can we do so that when we turn away towards sin, we never fail to turn back in repentance and faith? Those are questions we're going to wrestle with this morning. But before we jump in, let's stand and let's read God's word. Mark chapter 14, we're going to read verses 26 through 31, and then we're going to jump down to verses uh, 66 through 72. Next week, we'll look at that section in between. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Then jumping down to verse 66, Jesus has been arrested. He is facing the trial. He's in a room above Peter and Peter's down below in the courtyard Again, verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. 
And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there's three things that we need to take a look at from this text this morning. And the first thing we need to see is the deceitfulness of pride. The deceitfulness of pride. The second thing we need to see is the path to apostasy. And then the third thing we need to see is the call to keep your heart. The deceitfulness of spiritual pride, the path to apostasy, and the call to keep your heart. But first, let's jump in the deceitfulness of pride. Uh, I get to do a fair amount of premarital counseling. I love doing premarital counseling. I do. I love doing weddings. I love doing premarital counselings. And, and, and one of the tools that I use uh, as I work with pre-married couples is a tool that helps me measure their degree of idealistic distortion. Now, if you have been married for a year or more, you are like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> if you're not yet married, you're thinking, how could there possibly be any idealistic distortion? You know there's idealistic distortion when, you're, when you say things like, nothing could ever cause me to question my love for my future spouse. Or nothing will ever change my level of commitment to him or her. I could never love my future spouse any more or any less than I do right now. I mean, these are all indicators of idealistic distortion. I am not going to be throwing stones in glass houses because I am just as guilty uh, of this as anyone who may be in a, in a pre-married state. So, it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I always say at the end of premarital counseling, you know, I love you, may God bless your marriage, and I will be here in a year when it feels as though he isn't. I mean, why, why do they feel that way? Well, they, they love one another, but they lack self-awareness. Peter loved Jesus. In John chapter 21, when Peter is restored by Jesus, you remember this, this passage, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And the first thing that Peter says is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter loved Jesus. Peter was committed to Jesus. There's no reason to think that he was being impetuous. If the hymn had been written, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, Peter would have been singing it with all sincerity. Peter loved Jesus. He had a deep love for Jesus. He was highly committed to Jesus. What he lacked is what I'll call a sin awareness. He had a low view of indwelling sin. He thought nothing could prevent me from ever following Jesus. Surely I would never turn away from him. That is Pride. You know it's pride in part by the way in which he treats his fellow disciples. I, I read it you know, just a moment ago in verse 29, right? Look at it again. Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> I'm willing to believe your word concern, you know, concerning those guys, that riffraff, but I will never fall away from you, Jesus. What, what hubris, what pride. 
And then, of course, that lack of sin awareness, that low view of indwelling sin led to a very hard fall. Again, looking down at verse 71, he began to invoke a curse. That was an oath of malediction. What he was saying, and because there's not actually a subject in the sentence, he was saying it concerning himself and likely concerning those around him. What he was saying is, may God curse me if it finds out to be true that I know that man, and may God curse you if you keep insisting that I do. Peter fell hard. And I think at the heart of his falling was too low a view of his own sin. We must maintain a high view of indwelling sin. The Bible warns us against this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then right on the heels of that, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Paul calls us to acknowledge the power of remaining sin, even as he offers us encouragement in terms of escaping temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is is a verse we all need to know. Therefore, no temptation has, and the NIV says, seized you, The J.B. Phillips translation says, has you in its grip. The ESV says, has overtaken you. Most literally, the Greek could be translated, has you by the throat. It's the power of indwelling sin. No temptation has seized you, and here's the encouragement, except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear, and when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. But 10, 12 in the first part of 10.13, take heed lest you fall because temptation can have you by the throat. Tim Keller says concerning uh, marriage, and I, I always mention this in my premarital counseling and try to remember it myself. Uh, what he says is if, if both spouses, if both the husband and the wife Enter the marriage recognizing that their own self-centeredness will be the biggest problem in the marriage. There is the potential for a truly great marriage. That same thing needs to happen as we think about our relationship with Jesus. Now, of course, it breaks down on the Jesus side of things. Jesus is, at the same time, the most other-centered person in the world. He came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At the same time, it is always in our best interest for Jesus to seek his own glory. But on our side of things, do we recognize that the greatest hindrance, let me, just, let me turn this around, do you recognize that the greatest hindrance to your walk with Jesus is not the circumstances that are out there, it's not your past, it's not other people, it is your own self-centeredness, your own indwelling sin. Do we recognize that that's the case? And then let me just ask this question, what will happen if we nurture and grow both a deep love for Jesus and a high commitment to him and a high view of indwelling sin. And I think two things will happen, and then I'm going to move on to the second point. 
two things will happen. They will all mutually uh, influence and increase each other. If you have a high view of indwelling sin, if you have a high level of commitment to Jesus, if you have a deep love for Jesus, as you are committed to all three of those things, they will all mutually reinforce one another. And then the second thing I want to say is that your sin will grieve you. Peter was grieved by his sin. He broke down and wept. Your sin will grieve you, but it won't surprise you. It won't surprise you. We must beware the deceitfulness of spiritual pride. But secondly, let's move on. Let's make sure we understand something concerning the path to apostasy. And again, this is kind of part one on this. We'll come back to this more next week. And let me ask that question again. Why was Judas's failure terminal, but Peter's failure temporary? I think the answer to a large degree boils down to love for Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Again, that question that Jesus asked and Peter's response in, verse, uh, in John chapter 21 was not met by a correction from Jesus. Well, you may say you love me, but we all know your track record. Peter said, Jesus, you know that I love you. And then I think also it's evident from the great remorse that we see after he denied Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Judas used Jesus. Judas was in it for himself. He was the treasurer. He liked to skim a little bit off the top. Uh, Even his betrayal was for selfish ends. He received, you know, the amount that would be paid for a slave in in that society. It's all he got for betraying Jesus. Judas's turning away was terminal. For all we know, he never really knew Jesus. He never really loved him. Peter, by God's grace, his failure was temporary. So let me introduce some questions that I think the text invites us to ask concerning people who turn away today. Because there's a whole category now of people who uh, self-identify as ex-evangelicals. It's tragic. They have deconstructed their faith and have determined that Christianity is not true. They have, to use a more theological term, apostatized. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines apostasy as a deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has professed. Deliberate repudiation and abandonment of the faith that one has professed. This is, this is more than just, you know, I've, I've, I've turned away in sin and I'm repenting and, and turning back in faith. This is, I have decided not to follow Jesus and there's no turning back. Scripture warns against this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, there's this mystery that we don't have time to dive into this morning, but we talk about it frequently, and that is this, I want to say tension, but it's only a tension in our minds between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So if we read, you know, if you go back and read the Last Supper, uh, Jesus says concerning Judas that it was, you know, planned by God that it should be so. And here he says the reason why you'll all fall away from a God's sovereignty side of things is because Zechariah chapter 13 is going to prove true. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be uh, scattered. 
And yet places like we just saw in Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And that's just one of several passages that call us on the human human responsibility side of things to not fall away. Paul would say, make your calling and election sure. So there's some things that we see in chapter 14 that raise questions that I want to present to those who may be deconstructing right now. And the first is this, do you know what you're turning away from? This was at the heart of Judas's problem. Did he really know Jesus? Did he know who it was he was turning away from? And, and my question is, do you? Someone has asked, what version of Christianity are you turning away from? Are you turning away from the true biblical Christ? Are you turning away from something else entirely? We'll get into that more next week. The second question I want to ask is, are you willing to doubt your doubts? Are you willing to doubt your doubts? Peter had too high a view of his ability to follow Jesus. Do you have too high a view of your ability to deconstruct him? Or are you assuming your doubts are universal? and infallible? Or are you willing to consider that you may be wrong? And the third question I think this invites us to ask if we are considering deconstructing, and that's this, are you questioning in isolation? Peter, in a way, isolated himself. He certainly alienated himself from his fellow disciples. He was essentially calling Jesus a liar, so he was alienating himself and distancing himself from Jesus. Are you, as you deconstruct, as you ask questions about Christianity, are you doing so in isolation? Now, that may be more on us than it is on you. Jude, in Jude 22, says, have mercy on those who doubt. And as parents, in our homes, with our children growing up, and as a church, are we a place where people who doubt find mercy or are they pushed aside? So three questions that I think, you know, I want to present to you if you're thinking about, you know, deconstructing and turning away. Do you know what you're turning away from? Are you willing to doubt your doubts and are you questioning in isolation? If there is this risk of apostasy that exists, then what is the key to avoiding it? How can we ensure that our turning away is temporary and not terminal. And that takes us to our third point, which is the call to keep your heart. The call to keep your heart. I'm just gonna hit this, you know, briefly. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Diligence. The heart, again, Old Testament and New, is not just the emotions. It's your operating center. It's all your thinking, your, your willing, and your feeling, all bound up together. And the Proverbs, Scripture says, keep your heart. Paul in Romans 10, 9 and 10 gives us a reason why. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not enough to just voice those words. Is there genuine faith in your heart? For with the heart, Paul says, one believes and is justified 
And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. How do you keep your heart? A couple things I want to hit on in closing. First, believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. This starts with God and not with you. This starts with what he has said and what he has done and what he has said he will do, not with you and your commitment. I want to mention just three promises. One of them I already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that verse that is both a call to take seriously the power of indwelling sin, but also an encouragement. Because God has promised something in this passage. Did you hear it? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Remember passages like Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And then remember 1 Peter 5.10. Same Peter who denied Jesus. Same Peter who was restored by Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. That Peter wrote this. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He wrote from personal experience. Remember God's promises. Second, warn one another. Warn one another. Warn one another. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I read that already. It goes on. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember God's promises. Warn one another. Third, remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. It was right here in the passage. Did you miss it? Because the disciples missed it. Go back and take a look at verse 28. I'll read 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But what does he say in verse 28? Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. (laughs) You're all going to fall away. After I'm raised, I'll go ahead of you. I'll get there before you. I'll I'll go to that place where I first called you to follow me. And then you make your way there. I'll meet you there. Because that's where I'm going to recommission you to go to the nations. You'll all fall away. And when I'm raised, I'll just go ahead of you into Galilee. Follow me there. It's grace. They missed it. They heard the, you'll all fall away. What they missed was Jesus saying, and I will restore. I will recommission. I will use you in your weakness. Because I can use you in your weakness more than I could ever use you in your strength. Remember God's grace. You know, in verse 7 of chapter 16, we'll get there before 2021 is out, I promise. In verse 7 of chapter 16, Jesus is risen. Mary and Salome 
are at the tomb. They're saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? They want to anoint the body with spices. And then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And there was a a man dressed in white, a, a messenger of God, an angelic being. He's got a message from the Lord for these women to take back to the disciples. And he says this in verse 7, Go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Peter, who had so grievously denied Jesus, Peter, who had so blatantly said to Jesus, essentially, you're wrong. And then Peter, who called an oath upon himself, God, strike me dead if I know Jesus. That Peter, God wanted to make sure, got the message. Go tell the disciples. Tell Peter. Make sure he knows. Make sure he knows I want him too. Make sure he knows that even though he fell hard, I am a God of grace and no one can fall beyond my reach. Make sure Peter knows because I want Peter. Now you may be looking at Peter and saying, you don't know the half of it, Mark. You don't know how far I've fallen. You're breathing right now. And so repent. Receive God's restoring grace that you too might follow him. John chapter 21, I'll end with this. Again, that's the great passage where Jesus restores Peter. But it's not just Peter, right? I mean, that's singled out. But Peter and the other disciples are out on the boat fishing. Jesus is there on the shore, cooking up some fish over the fire. They're out there. Actually, no, he's got the fire going. He's waiting on them for the fish, right? They're out there fishing. They're not catching anything. Jesus has got the fire going. He's ready. They see a man on the shore. Who is that? Jesus calls out, have you, have you caught anything yet? <laughs> Nothing. Go ahead and throw your net over on the other side. And of course, they come in with this haul that's beyond their ability almost to carry. And then Jesus invites them to breakfast. Bring some fish. I've got the fire ready. Come eat with me. And then he singles out Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? In that moment, Peter experienced what the author of Hebrews was talking about when he said that God will never forsake you, nor will he ever leave you. If you feel this morning, either as if you have abandoned God or God has abandoned you, know that the God of all grace is present and is inviting you to a restored relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this passage. We ask, O oh God, that, that by your spirit, you would work in our hearts in such a way that no matter how far we think we have fallen, and no matter how far we have, in fact, fallen, we are never beyond the reach of your grace. Help us to remember that your grip on us will always be stronger than our hold on you. Lord, help us to rest in that good news. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.